Hey everyone, welcome back to Oxford Policy Pod from the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. I'm your host, Suta Kavari, and on this, my last episode, yes, sigh, you must, I am, however, delighted to be joined by the show's new host, yes, we're getting a new host, Suthi Palinepan. Suthi, welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. Hi, Suda. It is so awesome to be here. I am thrilled to be hosting season three of Oxford Policy Pod and to really get this opportunity to continue conversations on pressing policy issues. I'm very excited that you're excited. And you know, when I started this podcast, the idea was to continue it with every generation of MPP student and to really highlight some of the most pressing political and policy issues from around the world with such an international cohort that we have here at the Blavatnik. Now, today we're talking about a very salient and important um, crisis that's currently happening in Venezuela. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, this is, as you said, a, a really compelling issue for three major reasons. So first among them is this ongoing political crisis. Then you also have the economic collapse and this ensuing humanitarian emergency. So a whole host of things that have really intersected. And on that political front, there are these swirling questions around the legitimacy of the current president, Nicolas Maduro. So over the past five years, you had these 60 countries, including the US, including the UK, who have viewed Venezuela's parliament, that national assembly led by Juan Guaido, as really the only remaining democratically elected institution in the country. But then on December 6th, so just a few weeks back, that whole balance of power shifted when Nicolas Maduro claimed victory in the country's parliamentary elections. But many observers, including the opposition, who boycotted that election, argued that the process was a fraud that was conceived by the Maduro regime to seize control of the National Assembly. And to really make matters worse, the current political impasse plays out against this backdrop of a downward economic spiral that has crippled the country and led to hyperinflation, led to food shortages, and led to a humanitarian emergency. I guess when you look at the factors at the moment in Venezuela, I mean, Venezuela is currently beyond the point where you say it's at a tipping point. It has tipped into complete crisis. And I guess the power battles between Maduro and the opposition have further deepened the complex social crisis and without really any hope of political change. And on this episode, we explore the following questions. Who has political legitimacy? Is it President Maduro and the new members of parliament or the opposition? How has the political crisis impacted on the everyday lives of Venezuelans? And perhaps importantly, how does the crisis in Venezuela play out in the rest of the region? Welcome to Oxford Policy Pod. If you do things right, they're awfully gonna come after you. First of all, that was not an election, that was a fraud. Right now, the minimum wage ranges between $4 a month. The regime will say whatever they want to say. It doesn't matter because, of course, there's lack of transparency. As part of the diaspora, one of my roles is to raise that voice and inform people of what's going on in Venezuela and the different initiatives that are going on within. So joining me now is David Smolansky. He's one of the leaders of the Popular Will Party and is the former mayor of El Hatillo in Caracas, Venezuela, where he served the municipality from 2014 to 2017. He is currently the commissioner of the Organization of American States for the Crisis of Venezuelan Migrants and Refugees. And as we dig into the political situation in Venezuela, I also want to bring in Oxford Policy Pod correspondent Manuel Asuero, who's reading for the Master of Public Policy at the University of Oxford. So David, Manuel, thank you both for joining us. 
Thank you for inviting me. So David, I want to get started with where things are at right now. So after the parliamentary elections on December 6th, we know that Maduro claimed victory and consolidated his grip on power. But what, what do you make of this election? And do you think that Maduro's now power over the National Assembly really changes anything in real practical terms? Well, the first of all, that was not an election. That was a fraud. Uh, it's in a completely illegitimate uh, event uh, that it was condemned by the vast majority of the international community. When I say international community, uh, the European Union, the United Kingdom, Canada, the US, uh, the Lima Group, the Organization of American States. So uh, no one is recognizing that, uh, that fraud. Uh, and eight out of 10 Venezuelans didn't uh, participate because they knew that there was a fraud. Uh, it was a fraud because there was no international observation. It was a fraud because Venezuelans uh, don't have an electoral council that is uh, neutral. It was a fraud because um, it, political parties have been uh, illegalized. Uh, their, their leaders are in exile, are in jail. So um, it, it didn't exist. Yeah, and now I want to ask you about the legitimacy of this National Assembly. As we saw in 2015, the turnout rate at that election was at 70%, but this time around, it was, according to the government, at 31%, but even opposition observers have said that the turnout is even lower, maybe around 20%. So do you think that it's possible to claim that the National Assembly is going to be legitimate, the one that is sworn in, in on January 5th? No, it will not. The only one legitimate is the one that was elected in 20. Uh, Fifteen and uh, the lawmakers, even though they have been persecuted, threatened, some of them are in exile, a lot are, are have been in jail. They will keep uh, defending that uh, institution. So it's completely illegitimate what happened on December six. And the regime will say whatever they want to say. If they say twenty, they say thirty, they say thirty-five. It doesn't matter because, of course, there's lack of transparency. No one was witness of what happened that day. So we've seen support and this energy surrounding Guaido diminish almost over time in these past years. So how would you say that he's going to really come out of this election and be able to really bring people together in order to set yourselves up well for the future? I think it's a mistake that if, if, if people keep uh, framing Venezuela as a political problem only, it's like the opposition against the regime, like the regime against the interim government, it's like Guaido has diminished. Guaido is, is, Guaido is dealing in Venezuela with a narco state. And this is not David saying that or is reading that. I mean, the international community has said that. United Nations has published a report that um, accused the regime of committing crimes against humanity. This is not something conventional anymore. And I think we need to uh, interpret that like this, because if we see this as a debate or as a political problem between the, the regime and the interim government, I think the, the, the framing of Venezuela will be insufficient. David, that's a really interesting perspective. I think that you, you, you are right. I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to talk about Venezuela's situation in political terms because political institutions have been destroyed by, by Maduro during the last year. So, so it's, it's very interesting to know your, your perspective from that side. What do you think are the next steps that the international community should take? What do you expect, for example, from Biden's uh, new administration? Well, first of all, the individual sanctions, uh, we uh, have to continue. And specifically, individual sanctions against the ones who are involved in drug trafficking, illegal mining, human trafficking, corruption, uh, money laundry. That's uh, crucial. That's crucial. And, of course, human rights violations. That's crucial. Uh, a lot of uh, members of the regime are involved in those crimes I have just said have not been uh, 
uh, sanction. And the sanction has to be multilateral. That cannot only be the US or the European Union. We need, for example, that uh, efforts also from Latin American countries because are the ones who are suffering the most the consequences of the crisis in Venezuela. Yes, you've outlined things that the international community can now do. So shifting now to thinking about things that can be done within Venezuela, given that Maduro has control of the military, of the Supreme Court, of these other institutions, is it even possible to really change things through elections? Well, in my, my personal opinion, no. And I know this is controversial, but the free and fair elections in Venezuela uh, should happen after Maduro goes, after Maduro leaves office. The way he's going to leave is his decision. But uh, but no, no, no I, don't, I, don't, I don't see an election with, with Maduro uh, in power. So uh, having said that, the Venezuelans are so resilient. You will see almost every week people uh, protesting. And by the way, non-violent protests. And they protest because of lack of food, lack of medicine, lack of electricity, lack of water. Just last week, uh, more than 20,000 Venezuelans died in the sea trying to get to Trinidad and Tobago. And you see people from the, from the, from the place, from the city, which is a, a very rural area, it's named Guidia, protesting in a place that is completely controlled by drug traffickers and they are protesting against that, this is something uh, uh, very brave. That's another part of the, of, the, of the big discussion. And it's not about the, the future of the regime, but actually the well-being of all those people that are now running from the country. Uh, how is the international community uh, acting on this regard? I know, I know uh, firsthand Colombia's position, and I think Colombia has responded in a, in a very effective way to welcome Venezuelans. Which other countries uh, do you think are not acting in, in that way? Which countries should be should change? Because I, I know that's a, a, a big debate right now. Countries that are yes. closing doors. Well, let, let's say first, which are, acting, which, are, which are acting good, which are the vast majority. So of course, Colombia uh, is, is, is doing what they can but they can, 1.7 million Venezuelan migrants and refugees are in Colombia, but almost 50% has been able to get what they call the, the uh, permiso especial de permanencia, uh, the spe special permission to, to, to stay in Colombia for two years, and that has helped a lot of Venezuelans to get integrated on labor markets. Peru has also done the same. Brazil is doing a great job as well, because Brazil is the only country that is providing Venezuelans a refugee status, uh, according to Cartagena declaration. So any Venezuelan that get to Brazil could ask for the refugee status. And ha that has been my proposal for the whole region. The whole region need a consensus on how you treat Venezuela, which is the status that you give to Venezuelans. Why a Syrian, a Syrian person is a refugee and Venezuelans are not refugees? What's the difference? So I think that uh, in the whole region should be a consensus on which is the status that Venezuelans should get in my opinion, should be a refugee. And David, you earlier just talked about this concept of resilience. And I know that even you personally in 2017 were removed from office by the Maduro reg regime because of non-violently protesting them. So can you talk to me a little bit about your own personal experience with the regime and what can really be done to help protect people like yourself from ending up as political prisoners? After I was elected mayor of Veratillo, as you said, um, we were the, young, the youngest local administration in Venezuela. And we had, a, we, had, we had success, even though the challenges specifically reducing crime more than 80%, specifically kidnapping, and also we were organized 
of one of the most uh, transparent local governments in, in, in Venezuela. But at the same time, I, I was very proactive on, on the national level, uh, denouncing human rights violations and, and, and the humanitarian crisis. So after participating on those non-violent protests in 2017, I, I am under arrest warrant. I, I, so I actually had two arrest warrants. Uh, I was uh, removed from office. I am ruled out for any public role in, in Venezuela. I had to go 35 days in hiding until I was able to flee Venezuela through, through Brazil. Uh, and well, since, uh, since uh, September of 2017, I've been living in exile for more than one, three years. And I am one of many, 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 many victims of this regime. We are talking of hundreds of thousands, millions of people that are victims of of this uh, regime. So the, the, the first thing that I thought when I fled my country is how to be active in exile because for a public servant, it's very difficult to keep uh, serving for your homeland when you are not there. But I have kept active from exile and, and I dream every day to go back to my country to see again my family and to serve to my country uh, in, in, on the field. Thank you so much, David. We truly appreciate hearing your insights and thank you so much for your time as well. We'll definitely be keeping an eye on your work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry if I talk too much, but uh, it's impossible not to be passionate about my country. So now to really take a look at those everyday realities of Venezuelans and the impact that this crisis is having, not only on Venezuela, but on neighboring countries, I want to bring in Samuel Diaz and bring back Manuel Azuero. They are both students reading for that Master of Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government. So Sam is from Venezuela. He's the co-founder of Nutriendo El Futuro, an organization that provides nutritious meals for children at critical risk of malnutrition. And Manuel is from Colombia. He is a former journalist and a former local government official. Sam, Manuel, it is amazing to have you both on. First, I want to thank you for this opportunity, for giving me the space to talk about what's going on in my country. Where does Venezuela sit right now at when talking politically? First and foremost, Venezuela is going through a humanitarian emergency, not a humanitarian crisis, an emergency. It's a bigger tier. It, which we thought falls within the UN status. And the reason is that and one thing that people may not know is that it's the only crisis in the world that has been caused by political decisions. It's not caused by a natural disaster. It has not been caused by a war. It's all systematic political decisions that have led us to the situation we're right now. So to give you a, a bit of a, an example, we're in a hyperinflation economic situation right now. The currency right now, the Bolivar, it's equivalent to one million per dollar. So one dollar equals one million. Minimum wage, uh, it's around four dollars a month. According to latest studies of different of different surveys, they established that 92% of the population in Venezuela lives in under poverty line. Meaning that not the ninety-two percent of the population. Ninety-two percent. Ninety-two percent under the poverty line. Under the poverty line, and that also can be measured not only economically but also by the fact that they do not consume over two thousand two hundred calories yeah. daily. So th there are different mechanisms to measure poverty. In any mechanism of, of poverty, over ninety percent of the population of Venezuela lives under the poverty line. Yeah. Uh, I would also add that we're the second biggest migration crisis in the world 
uh, right behind Syria. As of now, as of today, in December, there are 5.4 million Venezuelans that have left the country officially. And according to estimates of the United Nations, by next year, by the end of next year, it could rise up to 8.4 million. And I wanted to add that previous COVID pandemic, they estimated that 30% of the population, according to the World Food Program, was under malnourishment. So 30% of Venezuelan population actually was considered to be food insecure. I cannot even imagine those numbers uh, if they actually have rights. I believe they have due to COVID because as many countries, we have been into lockdown. But how can you tell a family to go into lockdown when they depend on a salary of $4 a month and they rely only on that to feed a family of three or four? And I imagine a big chunk of um, the Venezuelans fleeing the well, the humanitarian emergency is a lot of the neighboring countries. I'm talking Colombia. Um, Emmanuel, you are from Colombia. Um, you were head of the head mayor at some stage of a city close to the Venezuelan border. How did how did how did you experience the flow of uh, migration coming from Venezuela? Number one, there is a big pressure on Colombia's uh, social services. So. Many Venezuelans, uh, of course, especially the ones that arrive to Colombia, are in a very vulnerable situation. They don't have their own means. They don't have uh, their own uh, like money to sustain their families or to sustain their uh, social development. So they rely on Colombians' public systems. Uh, they are using Colombian education system. They are using Colombian healthcare system. They are using Colombia's uh, social protection uh, services, and uh, of course, that uh, it's good that Colombia offered that an alternative. That Colombia offered an alternative, but uh, of course, it's not enough. I mean, Colombia's ability to respond to the crisis has haven't been the most effective. And what I saw in the city when, when I was working in the city hall in Bucaramanga, which is the fifth city in Colombia, as you said, very close to Venezuela's border, is that we were overwhelmed. And that many Venezuelans with their families, with their kids, have to live in the parks, in the streets. Uh, so it's uh, Colombia is doing its best, but the system uh, has been overwhelmed. That's one consequence. The other consequence, it's of course a big pressure on Colombia's uh, labor market. And that pressure is exacerbated with the COVID-19 crisis because the unemployment rate in Colombia went from around 9% on October 2019 to 14% on October 2020. So uh, to add the uh, COVID-19 to the Venezuela's refugee crisis, it's especially complex. And the final, it's that it's very sad to say it because we have a histori historic relationship with Venezuela, is that this pressure of, on the social services and this pressure on the labor market have generated uh, trends of stigmatization and discrimination against Venezuelans. And that's something absolutely unacceptable and painful, but it's something that we, we must recognize and we must address. And I think with, I mean, with the emergency unfolding, Sam, um, how have Venezuelans reacted? Regarding what we have done, I think that that's the hardest part because we have protested in 2014, in 2017, in 2019, every single year protests 
with a social component keep on the rise, especially because uh, the basic goods and the public services are keep on keep on decreasing international wise. There's a big difference between the funding that has been received by Venezuela for Venezuelan migrants that has been for Syrians. So as of today, one Syrian refugee tends to have received five thousand dollars, while a Venezuelan have received only a hundred. If you add up the total donations that have been received since 2014, Syria has accumulated over 33 billion in aid, but Venezuela has not reached the billion yet. Wow. So I think that one of the biggest aspects that we need to to work on is that international community needs to understand the the crisis that this actually means to the region and to help Colombia, to help Peru, to help Ecuador, to help the hosting nations that we have from within and provide them with the tools to make to, to make and deliver programs that focus on health, education, and receiving those migrants and incorporate them into the labor market. So I think that's one of the first things that the international community needs to, to address. And the Sam, lack of yeah. on, this, on this role that you're describing of the international community, I also want to ask you about sanctions, because we know that a lot of countries have put sanctions in place, including the United States, with this intention of curbing Maduro's undue influence within the region. But the sanctions have also really hit everyday Venezuelans extremely hard and kind of led to the situation without them having access to any basic necessities, as you've described. So how do you see international sanctions playing into this? And what should countries be doing now in the future that they've seen the impact that their sanctions have had in these past years? That's a great question. I was actually expecting you to do, to do it. <laughs> because the thing with the sanctions is that people tend to, and I think it's pretty I, I get offended when people say that the situation in Venezuela is because of the sanctions. Yeah, sanctions have had an important impact on Venezuela, but most of the sanctions has been targeted to particular individuals. And that's what, what cannot be missed. Most of the sanctions are directed to people who are right now in government positions. And I want to rescue from that, that this past September, the fact-finding mission of the United Nations established that there's belief and there's evidence to to assume that there have been crimes against humanity committed in Venezuela. So that also opens another front that needs to be pushed forward, is that it's in the International Criminal Court towards the Maduro regime. Yeah. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, that's now from an international level, what um, the response that's needed. And from a national level, I mean, we, we always see, you know, there's all these inspiring stories in, in countries with great strife, you know, citizens pulling together, um, setting up shelters, setting up uh, soup kitchens. Um, has there been a lot of solidarity campaigns in the country? Yes. And how can those be sort of like expanded? Since 2016, NGOs are not allowed to be registered in Venezuela. And the reason is that either you can register if you pay a high fee, backdoors, or you're not allowed to register because that means obviously an opportunity to have income coming to the country to help the others. Because NGOs are the biggest actor that society needs right now because they shed a light on the necessities that people have, such as food, such as water, such as basic services. We're empowering people from, to make them understand that the problem is not going to be solved by a third party, that it relies upon them to be the solution that they want in, within their community. And that's what the NGOs are trying to do. So you, you were yeah. asking, Sut and Sruti, what are the Venezuelans doing? So we have protests for over many years but when you're fighting an asymmetric war, when you don't have guns and they have the control of the military, when they don't use pellets to repel or to uh, a, a peaceful protest, when they use marbles, when they use coins, 
when you got in 2017, over 100 people killed, over hundreds detained, over thousands that were injured. It reaches a point where people ask themselves, what else can, can, I, can, can I do? And they're also driven by the, the prerogative of, if I go to protest, I, I'm jeopardizing my future, but I'm also not going to work. And if I don't go to work, I don't get the, the money that I need to put food on the table right now. So they're pushing us to the edge where people are desperate and they're thinking one day at a time. And that's the hardest part on how we make face to the situation in Venezuela. Is there anything in particular that gives you hope during this time that can really help get these countries out of the turmoil that has existed? Keep supporting and raising the voice. I think that people don't know what is going on and, and they don't need to know. I think that as part of the diaspora, one of my roles is to raise that voice and inform people of what's going on in Venezuela and the different initiatives that are going on within. There are several NGOs that they can support. I can talk about mine, Nutriendo el Futuro, which is feeding the future. And with because with $10, you're able to feed a child for a whole month. That equals 20 meals. With $10, I mean, a donation that for some people might be two meals in McDonald's, you could feed a child for a whole month within Venezuela. And as my organization, there's many also doing that job. The, and especially, I think, what right now what we can we, we can start doing is also thinking what's going to happen when this changes. I, I do believe that this is not going to last forever. No regime, no evil is eternal. Always the light and, and the good triumphs at the end. So we got to be prepared. My generation needs to be prepared to take over a country that has been brought to ruins, rebuild it from scratch, and make sure we don't commit the same mistakes that led us to where we are right now. Well, that's all we have for you on this episode of Oxford Policy Pod. And that's all from me. You'll never hear from me again. <laughs> I kid. Uh, it's been amazing hosting this podcast. And I'm really delighted and excited to have you on board. Thank you, Suda. Yes, we will be hearing from you. Don't worry. But I'm excited to have this opportunity and have obviously very big shoes to fill, but I'm super thrilled to be the new host from season three. And if you want to hear more of episodes like these, be sure to subscribe to Oxford Policy Pod. You can find us on Spotify, on Audioboon, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We don't control that. And if you have any questions, be sure to add us on Twitter at PolicyPodOxford. Oxford Policy Pod is edited and produced by students reading for a Master of Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. And we will see you in 2021.